just sitting down thinking about nothing looking at the thin air breathing of the oxygen Good morning, and welcome to episode 748 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus, presented by the Play Index at BaseballReference.com. I am Ben Lindbergh of Grantland, joined by Sam Miller of Baseball Prospectus. Hello. Hello. So what type of plane was it? Smaller than a 747. Yeah, I figured. I haven't been in a 747 in years. I always enjoyed it, though. You know, like, do you know when you walk on... Can you identify your plane? Well, you can tell a 747 because it's got the bump in the front with the upstairs. Uh huh. Very distinctive. Can, is that as far as your knowledge goes, or are you a, a fleet, uh, fleet, <laughs> fleet fanatic? No, I'm not a not a hardcore plane guy, but I've been in a lot of planes, and uh-huh. I have uh, probably wrong ideas about which models I prefer. I I might just start listening to everything you say and imagining that it is somebody from the 1940s bragging (laughs) i've been in a lot of planes i wonder how many things you say every day would fit this character that i'm now inventing of you of like a uh an american just coming out of the depression uh bragging uh, who went to like who moved to california or something and is bragging to your friends back home I don't know. What else do I say that would fit the character? I don't know. I'm going to have to start paying attention. <laughs> okay. <Good question. laughs> might, that might be it, but it might not be. I like Douglas DC-3s. Those are my favorite planes. Okay. All right. So, my diner is closing. Oh, God. That's that's the exact opposite. This is now, this is 10 years earlier. This yeah. is the same character, except 10 years earlier, bemoaning how bad things have gotten. Yeah. This is rough. This diner actually can is... Can I... So can I... I you, you won't do service to what you do with this diner. <laughs> okay. So let me tell everybody that I, I don't think I've ever laid it out. Maybe I have. It's okay. People don't listen <laughs> yeah. that carefully. We repeated ourselves yesterday, so... So Ben has a diner near his house that, as everybody knows, he goes to a lot. And mm-hmm. I've eaten there. I ate a meal there with uh, Brad Ankrum and Tommy Bennett and uh, and Ben about four years ago. And it was fine. And it was on an episode of Elementary, which is a show I care a great deal for. <laughs> it was so referred that, to on Seinfeld. So that bumps it a little bit. Now, here's the thing, though. Ben doesn't go there a lot like a lot of people go places a lot. He's not a regular. Every single day... Every single day, every day, Ben goes to this diner and orders a veg- a vegetarian omelet, a, a chicken wrap, a salmon Caesar salad, and soup, which is like $45 worth of food. <laughs> every day, he spends $45 on this food, takes it home, eats everything but the wrap, and then two hours later, he eats the wrap. That's what he eats. That is his entire consumption of convertible energy each day. Okay. Well, that's not remotely true. What? What do you mean? This is how you've described it to me multiple times. No. What did I miss? It's not you a got, sandwich. You it's got the meal. You got the meal right. It's okay. not nearly every day. Uh, you implied to me that it was. Was it at one point every day? No. It's probably the one place that I eat more often than any other place. But it's not an everyday thing. How many days a year? Maybe like fifty. Oh, that's see, that's much lower than it was implied to me by yeah. you. By yeah. you. 
yeah, I don't go there that much, but it's it's a block away and it's open 24 hours, and I'm open 24 hours uh, often, uh-huh. so I go there, and it's uh, you know it's Hell's Kitchen. It's the extreme west side, so it's not the best place for places to eat, and so I'm gonna be sorry to lose it. But it is I go there often enough that if it's the right time, whoever's there knows what I want. Yeah. So. I, I have passed that baseline level of going there. So uh, I'm sad. That's, by the way, I, I would say that bragging about your diner knowing your order fits 1940s posts. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. Okay. Small I, town diner. All right. So since this is a casual episode, now you're going to hear me making coffee. Just so you know. <laughs> that, this is that casual. Today. Just like going to the diner. So they're closing, but is it not a chain? Like it's a, not a chain, no. And as you know, I have no problem with chain diners, because we've discussed that too. But it's not a chain. When it goes, it's the last of its kind. Mm, wow. So if you're in New York and you want to make it to the Market Diner, go sometime soon. Are they building something there, or is it just... Yeah, they're putting up a apartment building. Wow. It's very sad. It's been there since the 60s in one form or another. Frank Sinatra used to go there, and I go there. But that's not enough to save it. Anyway, so Cliff Pennington pitched in a playoff game. That was weird. That was the first time a position player has pitched in a playoff game. So that's a milestone in position player pitching. Yeah, that was a weird game, too, because... I mean, I I almost wonder if this was semi-intentional, but it probably wasn't. But, I mean, the Blue Jays, that was just as bad a game as you could could have i mean they just got completely (laughs) walloped they it got it got ugly i would say like it wasn't just this game wasn't competitive as this game was it was less competitive than the score was which is its own kind of damning indictment like it never even though it wasn't really a blowout score was 14 to 2 so no no but i'm saying for most of the game it wasn't it was like 5 to 2 or something through 6 right and yet the blue jays had no threats no particular gr- good takeaway even through that. It was already a dispiriting, half-hearted, uh, walking dead kind of loss. And then all of a sudden, they just get completely stomped on. And it's, you know, humiliating and embarrassing. And the whole country is watching them just get trashed. And then Cliff Pennington comes out. And the dugout is, like, laughing and giddy and smiling. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, it sort of removed the perhaps extreme disappointment and anxiety that a team might feel going down three games to one against the defending AL champions in a uh, blowout loss like that. Mm -hmm. And they were like laughing and joking. It was like, we're going to see Cliff Pennington pitch, which isn't even that exciting a thing. Like, it's not like Cliff Pennington is like Ichiro. Like finally for years, we've wondered what (laughs) it would be like if Cliff Pennington pitched in a playoff game. Wasn't that at all. And yet they were, they seemed to be having a good time. He threw 91, though. He did. That was impressive. As Joe Lemire pointed out, he threw harder than Chris Young has thrown all year. Yeah. What do you think the average velocity would be for... By, let's, let's go by position. <laughs> if every pitch, if every player who played, who, say, started 50 games at each position this year pitched, what would be the uh, mean velocity hmm. uh, for each of those positions? Well, you'd have catchers, third basemen, and right fielders, I guess, would be your top tier. And You think third base over shortstop? 
I don't know. Maybe maybe there's not much of a difference there. I, I don't know. So uh, catchers would be number one, maybe? I'm not so much asking you to rank them. I'm asking oh, for numbers. Just numbers. So, well, the top tier, I would guess, I mean, there are a lot of guys who have good arms but have no mechanics or anything. But if you just wanted to, to throw one pitch, they could probably average. I, I, want, them to pitch an, I want them to face a batter. Uh-huh. Or at least three batters. So not enough that I'm going to see a fatigue set in, but enough that they have to repeat it. Well, I think if you took the top couple positions as an average, I think they could pitch to a batter at an average speed of 87 miles per hour. Okay, go through these, the eight positions in baseball that uh-huh. aren't pitcher and put a number on each position for what the average player at that position can throw from a mound with a windup. All right, catcher, 89. Third base, right field, 87. Third base, 84. Shortstop, 83. Center field, 80. And then, I don't know, what do we have left? Left field and, left field and second, second base, base and first, and first base. base. Yeah. So I'll say left field... Uh, I mean, I'm already, I'm probably too low already. I think I'm too low. But if I said, uh, when was I down to like 80 or something for center field? That's probably too low already. But, you know, subtract a, a couple miles per hour for each of the remaining positions. So I think there would be a spread of, say, from catcher to second base or whatever it would be probably like a, at least 15 mile per hour spread. Uh huh. I don't know that 80 is necessarily too low. Maybe not. For, I mean, you know, for those you, positions. You have your Johnny Damons and your, you know, Bernie Williamses out there. So I don't know. It just seems like. Well, T- what did TJ hit? TJ was like 74, right? Oh, our third baseman on the Stompers. Yeah. I don't. I don't think so. I. I think he was lower than that. He was effective, but I don't think he threw that hard. I think there'd be a. A big spread, but I bet like the lowest possible position. I mean, what would second? What would be the weakest? Second base? What would or first base? One probably of those. first base. Yeah, I think probably first base. So but first and second would both be weak. We also our catcher who we who had a good arm, Parker. He said that uh, he wouldn't be able to really crack eighty, and he's a catcher, and he's got a pretty good arm now, an indie ball arm. <laughs> right, low indie ball. So. But I mean, don't you think that Parker's got a better arm than most second basemen? In the majors? Yeah, I think so. Anyway, I think that shortstops would be the, the fat. I bet shortstops might even top catchers, but maybe mm. not. Maybe they wouldn't top catchers, but I would put shortstops over right fielders and third basemen. Okay. All right. What do you think the range would be? It's like 76 for first baseman. Uh, that might be a little low for an average, but yeah, like 70, 70, high 70s. Mm-hmm. Nah, I'll go 76 for first baseman and uh, 88 for shortstops, 89 for shortstops. That doesn't okay. feel like a big enough spread, does it? But I guess we're talking about averages. Yeah, that's about what I was thinking, so makes sense. All right. All right, so Zach emailed us about something in response to your play index segment from yesterday on guys who hit a high percentage of their home runs. Solo shots, and I had heard about this but forgot about it. Marwin Gonzalez on the Astros has 24 career Major League home runs, and all of them are solo homers. And obviously didn't meet the baseline for your play index, which was 50 solo home runs, but he's half the way there, and he hasn't hit a multi-run homer yet. Yeah. So, so good for him. It's a good one. It's the Webb Albers of hitting solo homers. <laughs> it is. 
That can't, there's no way that survives, right? No, it can't last long. How many years, if I, how many, okay, (laughs) how many um, years would you allow Marwin Gonzalez to stay in the majors and have it be 50% likely that that stat survives? It's like two months, right? If he plays two more months, you would probably figure it won't survive? Yeah, I mean, he hit 12 home runs this year and in, in 370 plate appearances, so he has some power. I don't know how much he'll play next year, but but yeah, I wouldn't bet on that continuing past like like whatever the percentage of home runs that are not solo shots, which I don't know if you know, but I mean, you know, I guess a three quarters of them or, or how what percentage? Uh, 50, of, 50? About half. About okay. half are solo and about half come with men on them. So, a little slightly higher are solo, but not by much. Okay, so I wouldn't really bet on him going more than three homers without doing one yeah yeah anyway fun while it lasts joe sheehan made an interesting point in his newsletter yesterday about the way that we think about starts in the playoffs or not even just in the playoffs but even in this enlightened age when we don't really pay that much attention to pitcher wins even when Chris Young came out of the game yesterday after four and two thirds and said he's totally fine with it because pitcher wins are stupid, which was nice to see, I suppose. We still kind of react very differently depending on what the score is when a pitcher leaves the game. And Joe was comparing Marcus Stroman and David Price and their starts in the current series. And Stroman pitched to six and a third and he gave up four runs and 11 hits and he walked a guy and he only struck out one guy and he got a standing ovation when he walked off the mound whereas price pitched six and two thirds so he went a little bit farther than stroman did and he also gave up four runs on five fewer hits and one less walk and he struck out seven more guys and yet david price is kind of, I don't know, a choker or he fell apart or Blue Jays fans probably are not having the same feelings about David Price that they are about Marcus Stroman right now. And that's pretty much entirely dependent on how many runs the Blue Jays scored in the games that they pitched. That's a really interesting point. I do think that there's kind of been a collective delusion about how well Marcus Stroman has pitched of Uh late and particularly in the postseason. And uh, yeah, I hadn't even really thought about that. But yeah, you're right. Yeah, or Joe's right. Yeah, and and even like the the two Jake Arrieta starts, his most recent starts, like they were just about exactly the same. Like one was five and two thirds, one was five, one was five hits, one was four hits. They were both four runs, two walks, and either eight or nine strikeouts. But the Cubs scored eight runs in the first game he pitched, and I guess there was some surprise that he just allowed runs at all because we hadn't seen that in a while. But he still won the game and. No one said Jake Arrieta is falling apart or anything. But then the second game, the Cubs scored one run, and Arietta lost, and suddenly people were talking about fatigue and velocity loss, and is he okay? And it was also sort of score-dependent. And he gives a couple other examples, but that's clearly still a, still a thing, I think. Even though we don't think about wins and losses so much, the amount of praise or criticism a pitcher gets is definitely dependent on how many runs his team scores and what the score is when he leaves the game. I think that the standing ovation part I'm okay with because it's partly just a way 
for the crowd to release its, its excitement about being ahead in the game. It's not necessarily... Uh, it is, it's close, but it's not necessarily a individual-specific uh, celebration. Mm-hmm. And there is just something about saying, hey, our starting pitcher is leaving, and we're winning. This is awesome news. But, you know, when it comes down to letting a guy get through the fifth or i don't know i don't if you start making decisions based on it then that's really problematic mm-hmm. uh and with arietta partly it's i think that i think there was a little bit of concern after the first one yeah, maybe um, a little and of course now there's two mm-hmm. there's more concern now because there's two he had his two worst starts in four months back to back yeah okay well it's something i will be keeping you- in mind are you worried about Arietta? Also, there's the the velocity. He was his velocity was down, and you know his manager didn't seem to be all that thrilled with how he was throwing based on the decisions he was making and the words he was saying. So, are you worried about Arietta? Not really. I, Harry talked about it a bit on Monday's show, and Harry is better at diagnosing pitchers than I am, probably. And he wasn't worried about it. He thought he was actually too amped up as opposed to too fatigued so i don't know how many pitchers how many starting pitchers currently in the postseason would you rather have a start a game for you than arietta right now so you've got nobody on the royals Mm -hmm. you've got nobody on the blue jays unless you think price still and then you've got you've got the yes maybe Degrom, maybe Syndergaard, but not by a, a clear margin and not Harvey? I don't think so. I mean, the fact that you're considering this suggests that you you also have changed pretty strikingly your assessment about Arietta. Because if I'd asked you two starts ago, mm-hmm. it would have been Cranky, Kershaw, Arietta, and then like a huge tier, right? Probably. I mean, I mean we talked about how Arietta versus Cole is a pretty healthy mismatch. And Cole is might be better than anybody left in the postseason at this point. Yeah, DeGrom's probably better. Probably, but my, that's why I said might. Yeah, I, I guess it has changed my mind slightly. I'd probably still take Arietta. Okay. Well, so I didn't hear it, but what's the two amped? How does that work? Because his his average fastball was two mile, two and a half miles an hour lower, or two miles an hour lower than against the Cardinals, and like a mile and a half lower than against the Pirates, and you know, basically a mile to a mile and a half lower than his norm, which that sort of fluctuation in one start isn't necessarily anything, but um, uh, how did how did that square with the two amped uh, explanation? He thought he was rushing through his delivery, and that uh-huh. the biggest problem was his command. And yeah, okay, yeah. okay, yeah, makes sense. All right, so we're gonna just answer a few questions that we didn't get to answer yesterday, but I would still like to answer. So. I'll start with, well, let's start with Michael, who basically just wants to know why we hear about shutdown innings at this time of year. Why postseason broadcasters latch on to this idea? I think that you hear post uh, regular season announcers talk about shutdown innings a lot. Shutdown innings are pretty constant in my life. I, I don't hear them much in December and January. <laughs> I will say that. But, I mean, even like I know I've... For instance, the Giants announcers, Kruko and Kuiper, talk about shutdown innings and have for years. And I even love those guys. Uh-huh. Okay. Uh, I some, feel I, like I hear them a lot more now. 
yeah. I, I don't know, maybe it's just the local broadcasts I'm listening to or not ones that talk about it, but once you get to the playoffs, it's every game, it's every other inning, just about. I Yeah, I don't know. I'm not sure. How do you... Do you when do you think you first heard of the concept of a shutdown inning? For me, it was not long ago. Like, it was... I feel like if there was one postseason, maybe two or three years ago, where all of a sudden shutdown innings... I mean, maybe I had heard it before, but I, I remember just not knowing what it was at one point, just hearing it and not recognizing it. So it's definitely not something that I've been aware of since I started watching baseball. I don't know if it has existed in some form. Maybe it has, but there was a, a time not long ago when I was introduced to the concept. I feel like every time a stat head invents a new stat, a non-stat head also invents a new stat. <laughs> yeah. It's like an arms race between the uh, the good things you can say and the dumb things you can say. Yeah. Like there's this perfect equilibrium. And if we all just shut up, then the whole world would go silent and we would just sleep very peacefully uh-huh. so i don't know i mean i guess i get the appeal of as a broadcaster it sort of gives you a gives you some stakes for that inning or it gives you some extra suspense for that inning is it going to be a shutdown inning it's, <laughs> it's something i don't know it's something to say you're just desperate for things to say well <laughs> Postseason is also much more momentum focused than regular right. season, and it fits with that. I mean, it, that's what a shutdown. In, that's all that a shutdown inning exists as is potentially a way of looking at uh, momentum. Right? Mm-hmm. It's the idea is you've you've taken this extremely valuable thing, which is momentum. You finally have taken it. Now, are you going to keep it, or are you going to? Is it going to be like one of those fumbles where the defensive lineman picks it up and has never held a football before and immediately loses it again yeah and now the other team's running you know the offense is all of a sudden running for a touchdown or are you going to hold on to it are you going to nurse it are you are you going to be able to ride this little wave for the rest of the day and that's you hear the idea of momentum on different time frames pretty much constantly throughout the postseason. You have the momentum of the season going into the series. You have the day-to-day momentum of it. You have the question of whether sweeping a team gives you too much time to lose your momentum before the next series starts. Um, and you have the within-game momentum. And so it makes sense that they're just they're like this idea that we need to talk constantly about the postseason as a um you know as a as a wave that is that that some team is riding to the finish um that we're going to get more and more specific in where we look at it and now we've reached the innings level eventually we'll be at the subatomic level and in between we'll have the uh, within innings we'll have the within an inning momentum uh and then we'll have the within an bat momentum and uh, eventually we'll see into our own souls <laughs> right it's such a strange idea. I'm I'm pro shutout innings. I like shutout innings. Shutdown. Uh, nobody's innings. <laughs> nobody is saying. I don't. I think that look. It's 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 a dumb banality. It means it doesn't really mean all that much. It's not really particularly a skill separate from all other baseball skills. And so yeah, just don't you know? Don't say it. That'd be fine. You're not really adding anything. But 
they're not really subtracting anything either. They're filling your ears with words that don't move you, but it's like it's not really like they're saying anything controversial. You actually do want to go out and pitch a scoreless inning, and you could argue that you could argue. I don't. There's no evidence for this, but based on the way baseball players feel and storytellers in general feel. There's added value to it in this situation where um, maybe momentum is is about to tip one way or the other, and I don't know. It's a as as a reflection of how I think that the players themselves feel sometimes, the dispiriting way that a uh, that a pitcher maybe can't protect a lead. It's it you know kind of brings you into the ball player mindset or into the dugout mindset, but it's fairly harmless otherwise, right? Well, everything on a baseball broadcast is harmless. So, I don't know. Russell Carlton wrote about it a couple of years ago and found that there was no real significance to it. So, it's just a, I don't know, it's just a strange mindset where you repeat this thing over and over without ever checking to see if it means anything, if it tells you anything. I wouldn't want to do that. I don't know. Like, the first question I had when I heard it the first time was, does this tell you anything that a shutout inning doesn't, and it doesn't. I don't know why it's this time of year, but you're probably right. It's it's a momentum time of year. Yeah. If you could compare like the players' brain chemistry, what what they're feeling when a pitcher allows a run in a shutdown inning, as opposed to some other inning, I bet it would be the same. Yeah. If, if, if you could look at the you know the dopamine or the opposite of dopamine or whatever it is. Yeah. I think you're right. I think I'm going to I'm going to join you on this side actually. I think you're probably right. It there is something that there there is something distracting about focusing so much attention on things that aren't true. And I don't I guess maybe it isn't quite totally harmless. And you're right. It's not I not purely descriptive. They will, you know, show a guy's performance in shutdown innings and the implication if you're showing that probably that it's not completely random right because if it were then why bother showing it so it yeah you're right okay i i 100 percent agree all right okay brady says do projection systems factor in postseason performance when projecting next season not that they'd inappropriately leverage the postseason numbers or anything just that there'd be more data to collect from and they don't but it would probably be good if they did not that good but it would probably help i think if you could include an extra month of information on some guys and an extra month of performance against really good pitchers, I don't know what the maximum that you would move a projection is. I mean, what would Daniel Murphy's projection shift if you could include postseason? Probably like, you know, two points of true average or something yeah, going probably, into next year. Maybe slightly less, but yeah. There's yeah. No, there isn't. There's no reason for a projection system to ignore it, other than that it's somewhat more complicated, right? You, yeah. These are in, these numbers are in different data fields, and now you've got to merge them. Right, and, and you'd have to adjust for the quality of competition. Yeah. And, and it would only be some guys getting that data and other guys not getting it, so I don't know that it would be worth the processing power. But if you could design an ideal projection system that took into account everything then you would certainly want postseason in there. Yeah. I, I'm, I can't remember who it was, but a couple of years ago, 
I did a post after the postseason that looked at which players' uh, season lines had most changed throughout, uh, if you include their October stats. Uh-huh. And there were a few interesting shifts in the way that you would view a player. Uh, like, for instance, Mike Trout probably, if, you would, if you'd had this, Mike Trout probably would have won the MVP because Miguel Cabrera wouldn't have won the batting title mm. and therefore not the Triple Crown. And... I forget who else. Like, you know, Bumgarner's year last year, if you look at ERA Plus, was like 115 or whatever. But if you include October, then now all of a sudden he's got like the, I don't know, sixth best. or That's a totally made up number, but like the sixth best ERA Plus in the National League. And all of a sudden you see a pitcher who really is at a, at a higher level than his regular season stats alone would have shown. And so there's a couple of players every year where their stats in the postseason give you, uh, added to their regular season, give you a fuller picture of their true talent level. And, uh, and, and, uh, but in practice, it's the exact opposite is the problem. They tend to get overvalued and there's no real, generally there's no real f- uh, threat of a player's postseason, extreme postseason performance going overlooked or under, under, underweighted. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, we talk a lot about how much players move their, Contract expectations in a short sample. We talked about it with Johnny Cueto yesterday. And John Heyman reported this morning that the Mets are now planning on offering a qualifying offer to Daniel Murphy, which you would think would not have happened before this postseason. So that means that either they think he's better than they thought he was a few weeks ago, or they think that someone else will think that he's better than they thought he was a few weeks ago and would therefore pay him more. So that means that the Mets believe that this moves the needle on Daniel Murphy's projections or that someone else will believe that. So maybe a projection system would show that too. So like Jose Valverde, the year I did this, his ERA for the season went from 378 to 502, if you include the postseason. Uh-huh. And uh, that's a totally different season. And Ryan Vogelsong went from, I'm going to talk about wins for a second, but went from 14-9 and to 17-9, and which is a pretty big difference in what we think about as uh, of pitchers. And Robinson Cano's OPS dropped from like, like 930 down to like 870. That was right before he hit free agency, and that's a pretty big difference. So, mm-hmm. All right. Lance in Dallas says, as a Rangers fan, it was hard to listen to your episode on the last game of the LDS or read or watch any post-game coverage. Most people are looking at the seventh inning from the Blue Jays' perspective, which they should, but it was just another creative and brutal way to end the season for Texas. Looking at the last six years in particular is a lesson in historic misery. 2010, dominated by Giants pitching in five games. 2011, game six, David Freeze. 2012, collapsed to the A's and dominated by Joe Saunders in wildcard game. 2013, lose play-in game against David Price's Rays. 2014, the most injury-plagued season ever. 2015, the seventh inning. You could almost utter that terrible couldn't script this cliche, but really, how could anyone have? My question is whether you guys can think of any other specific fan base or franchise that has suffered as inventive and tragic a resume over the span of six years. Throwing in the fact that the team has never won a World Series in its history, I'd argue that recent Rangers fans might have the strongest claim to suffering ever. I'm going to say no. No, they don't have the strongest claim to suffering ever? Yeah, I'm going to say it's not that strong a claim to suffering. 
it's suffering suffering is the wrong word and it's a it's a exceptionally specific time frame right to to uh to set your limits around so uh in those two senses there is a a knee-jerk reaction to not want to give this guy that much credit yeah can you really suffer when your team is Right, been to the World Series a couple of times and missed the playoffs only once, and um, and got like you know arguably lucky as heck this year mm-hmm. to make it, and so it's all. But it depends what you remember and what you focus on. And in if the question is the hardest ways to lose, I would probably rather be the. Ra- I mean, obviously, I would rather be the Rangers than the 1990s and early 2000 Pirates. Uh-huh. That. That was suffering like yeah. that. I can't imagine being a Pirates fan during not quite that whole 20 year run, but like 12 years, I think is probably the most brutal way to be a fans, a team's fan since the mid-century Phillies. Yeah. However, if we're talking about competitive teams, teams that were World Series contenders, we all talk about how the playoffs are a crapshoot. Broaden out from, say, beyond six years and say in the wild card era, is there another team that has been more frustrated by the playoffs or a crapshoot uh format and i would probably still pick the a's yeah over them uh and you can not only the a's just generally like it's they've been there a lot they've had great teams they've had they've built great teams and then they've lost on crapshoots but i mean they you could also name specific like oh my gosh moments in their history like i said i think that last year's wild card game was even more than this year's seventh inning the flip is an oh my gosh but i mean they're what are they like what is this stat they're like oh and 12 in in clinch games or something like that like they've they've been on the cusp so many times Mm -hmm. and there's no real reason to think that a team would be so good in the first couple games of a series and then just constantly unable to close it out um, so I, uh, and I made that stat up by the 0 and 12, by the way, but it's right. something, it's something like that. Yeah. Uh, and so I would say the A's have had it harder than the Rangers. Is there another team? I mean, the Yankees won that world series. Otherwise it'd be pretty miserable for them since 2001. Uh-huh. Uh, but I'm not in any way going to to the Yankees. <laughs> yeah. And the six year time frame is tough because, so much of how painful it is to lose has like the weight of history behind it. So obviously, if you you know the inclination is to say the Cubs or the Red Sox or something, but over a six-year span, maybe you couldn't come up with a six-year span that is quite so painful. Except that every loss that those teams have is made worse by the decades and decades of losing that preceded it, and so maybe you could. Say it's just the, you know, I, like the Indians or but the, the Indians probably haven't made the playoffs enough in a six-year span for it to be painful. So maybe, maybe, depends how you think about disappointment, because the fact that the Rangers were in the playoffs at all this year was a nice surprise for them. And so you kind of weigh that against the disappointment of losing, and maybe it takes away from it a little bit. The seventh inning was so strange on both sides. I don't know how it feels for a Rangers fan, but it was just so wacky. I feel like it would be less painful that that happened just because it was so strange on both sides and it was just barely even baseball. I think that uh, the Padres have had a pretty frustrating 
not just in terms of not winning much lately, but even if looking at just the crapshoot nature, uh, I think you could make the case that it's been a pretty tough time to be the Padres in the wildcard era because they have essentially been completely demolished every time they've made it there. Like, they haven't even had the A's situation where they get so close. Like, they've made, in 96, they made the playoffs and got swept in the division series. In 2005, they made the playoffs and got swept in the division series. In 2006, they made the playoffs and got, uh, they won one game. They had the tag play, the Matt Holiday tag play in the 163rd game in 2007 and missed the playoffs because of that. I mean, that's one of like the all-time, I mean, that's to me, that's up there with A.J. Pruszynski's dropped third strike against the Angels thing mm-hmm. for most memorable season-turning umpire calls. And... And then the one year that they were successful, they went to the World Series, they were probably the most dominated World Series team in my (laughs) lifetime. Either them or the 89 Giants, I would say, just in terms of complete dominance within the series. Yeah. So, like, that was, in a way, that was almost kind of like, I don't know, sort of humiliating. Mm -hmm. Uh, And they, uh, they still are mad about some strike call during that series. Like, they're... Like, it's been 17 years or whatever, and they're still talking about, like, one strike call to Tino Martinez. So that just gives you a sense of, and not that they should or shouldn't be, I'm not begrudging them, they're a chip on their shoulder, but that just gives you a sense of what it's like to be a Padres fan, that your most defiant, your most successful season in the last, in the wildcard era, you're still holding on to a borderline strike call against Tino Martinez. That's, like, a frustrating way to live. Like, that, like the Giants, for instance, were holding on to Dusty Baker giving the ball, game ball to Russ Ortiz for years and years and years, and now nobody cares. Like that season is like just part of what got them there. It's all good, mm-hmm. uh, and the Padres haven't had that. So I think that uh, I'd go A's, and then Rangers and Padres both have uh, legitimate gripes. But if you're talking big picture, then yeah, it's in our lifetime, it's either the Pirates or the Cubs or. Can't really say the Royals anymore. Yeah, Pirates or Cubs, and uh, Pirates pretty bad too. To get to have three wild, yeah, to have to go through the wild card game three years in a row. Yeah, that's rough. Uh, did they have home field in all three of those? So they would have. I think yeah. they had home field in all three, right? So in the old format, they would have been in the ser- in the division series automatically all three times. Right. Yeah, uh. that's tough. All right. Uh, last one from Darren. When a GM is hired mid-year or at the end of a year, when does the clock really begin? Technically, it should be the day the GM starts, but certainly those results are no reflection of their performance. What is the general rule for you for when you start holding a new GM accountable for wins? Does it depend on when the hire was, mid-year, or in the off-season? If it's a mid-year hire, then I don't know that that would change the timeline, really, because you can't do all that much before the year is over anyway. You can start planning and you could get your get your sea legs and that sort of, you know, get adjusted to the job, but you can't really make wholesale roster changes before the end of the season anyway. So I don't know that that would change that much, maybe a little bit. But he's basically asking what the plan should be, like Dayton Moore's five-year plan or seven-year plan or whatever it is. What should the plan b what's the length the most reasonable length for a new gm who takes over depends also obviously what team he's taking over if he's 
taking over a team that's a complete tire fire, then you give him more years to get it back on track. But also, I think there's a there's kind of a an analogy between FIP and ERA here, where I wouldn't really look at his wins as the way to assess him for a very long time, because there's so much luck and variability in whether good moves turn into wins, and there's so many different cooks, too, that you could uh, look at as earning or um, costing you those wins. So, like, for instance, I wouldn't necessarily look at a pitcher's ERA uh, over the first two months at all. I would look exclusively at a pitcher's FIP. But over the course of a career, all right, fine, now I start to move away from FIP and toward ERA. So for a GM, like, I would say that I would assess his moves on an individual basis, and maybe by the second one, I would start feeling some feelings about Mm -hmm. him. And by his first offseason, I would feel like I would have a pretty sound profile of him. But uh, whether I would judge him on his team's record in the following years, uh, I might go upwards of like seven seasons before I was really confident using just wins and losses relative Mm -hmm. to my expectations. Well, I think the Astros and Cubs have given us the standard that we should judge future GMs by, or at least that it would be fair to judge future GMs by, because Jeff Luno was hired in October, or no, Jeff Luno was hired in December of 2011, and Theo Epstein was hired in October of 2011. So right around the same time, and they both took over teams that were bad, and they had to completely rebuild and go through a period of being terrible, And then they both built their teams into playoff teams with good farm systems and really, you know, optimistic outlooks by 2015. So a future GM can't really claim that he hasn't had enough time if he's had that amount of time. Because those guys did essentially the hardest job. They went from bad to nothing, the worst, to among the best in four years or less than four years i mean it depends what your goal is though as a franchise i mean that is it the hardest job to go to i don't is it the hardest job to go from bad to good the way they did it or is it the hardest job to go from bad to good while also you know maybe maybe your ownership wants quicker credibility maybe your fan base for some reason requires quicker credibility maybe you're a different team in a different state of uh, of your franchise and winning the first World Series in 50 or 100 years isn't quite the end-all be-all. And so it's not quite as important that you uh, sacrifice everything for three or four or five years to get that first World Series. I mean, I'm not sure that, like, for instance, I we weren't judging A.J. Preller harshly for his tactics uh, as of the end of March nope. uh, because it was a different goal the franchise had different goals and so it will now probably take aj preller longer to build an extreme super powerhouse dynasty if that's what his goal is but although he, you, you could say that he set the goal or he helped set, i mean we don't know obviously the real answer here is we don't know because we, we don't, don't know and we don't know that his goal was a bad goal it could have worked there was a 30 percent. i mean the you know they had a better chance of making the playoffs as of march 31st than a lot of teams that made the playoffs. And mm-hmm. it could very easily could have worked. They could have won a World Series. Um, and so I don't necessarily think that you uh, knock a guy for having a 
different approach to building that team necessarily. I mean, I, each team has their own their own goals for how to get there and their own priorities for what else matters beyond the simple binary won a World Series or didn't win a World Series way of judging a team's existence. So I that's not knocking what Astros did. It's not knocking what Preller did. It's not knocking what Dayton Moore did. It's not knocking what any of them did. It's saying that uh, you can't judge any GM, uh, I think. I don't think, by the standards of any other single GM because they take different paths intentionally and mm. they avoid other paths intentionally and none of them is wrong or right. Okay. Well, maybe we could say that if you do decide to do the teardown and rebuild, yeah. then at least we have the baseline for how long that should take if you're good at it. Now we know that you know four years after taking over, a team can go from mediocre with no future to absolutely terrible to really good with a good future again and you're right if the ownership doesn't let you do the teardown and instead insists that you sign some you know decent free agents so that you can just stay respectable which might make it harder to be really good down down the line then maybe you get a longer period so it depends yeah all right okay all right. Okay, so we'll be back tomorrow. We need our emails replenished, so please send some to podcast at baseballperspectives.com. Facebook groups at facebook.com slash groups slash effectively wild. And you can rate and review and subscribe on iTunes. Support our sponsor, Play Index, by going to baseballreference.com using the coupon code VP when you subscribe to get the discounted price of $30 on a one year subscription.